Uh, just a quick update on a few things as we look to 2020. Uh, so welcome. Good morning, everybody. It's, it was a, it's really a clear day today, if you haven't noticed. If you're driving down the hill, you can really see across Malibu and Santa Monica and, and the San Bernardino Mountains and beyond. It's just amazing. It's really beautiful, but it's uh, uh, totally appropriate today to talk about vision when we have such great vision today. Uh, so many wonderful things are happening. Um, I just first of all wanted to just say uh, thank you for your generous giving this year. Uh, we are going through the accounting of last year and, and a quick analysis, though I'm not a math major and Bill's not a math major. Uh, he, I do all the math for Bill, which is really scary. It's good that we have a finance team. Let me just say that. They're in charge of the finances. We're in charge of the vision. We work together. And um, we set the, the, the uh, budget for about 1.45 or so this last year. And about 1385 or so came in. So we were very, very close. Only two years in the last 13 years. I'm not going to breathe this entire time. I'm just going to keep talking. I feel like one of the Gilmore girls. But anyway... Only two years in the last uh, 13 years have we not met our budget and exceeded it. I mean, that's amazing. I consider that incredible that God, what he does is he, he, he casts the vision for us and then matches it through your generosity and faithfulness. Part of Christian, Christian faith is giving. We know that. And we've seen that year after year after year. We just keep setting the up. We're hiring staff. We're doing ministry. We're working in the community. We want to do more things. And God shows up through you, and we meet the budget. And, and, uh, and it, again, this year, I mean, it was just amazing what's happened. And so I'll give you a, a, just a shout-out and a thank you for your generosity. We're continuing to focus on the four values of the River Church. I was with one of my fraternity brothers who was my big brother in college this last weekend. I also got sick. And uh, I was reading John Mark Comer, by the way, uh, the um, uh, ruthless elimination of hurry. And while I'm sick, I'm going, can you please hurry up with this thing? Because I am way too busy to get sick right now. And I spent all of Tuesday and Tuesday night in bed uh, with this stomach, this severe stomach pain. And then I got up Wednesday and went, I am way behind and I need to start hurrying here. So uh, the book has really not made an impact quite yet, but it's working on it. By the way, John Mark Homer in the book says no is a full sentence. Think about that. But so I meet my fraternity brother, and I hadn't seen him in a lot of years, and we were sh- he was sharing his whole life with me, things that I had never heard. I've known him for 40 years, and he opened up his life and wanted to know more about what I was doing. And I said, well, the river's doing great, and we've really kind of condensed down the values of our church. And he's listening, and um, he's not a churchgoer. And he said, uh, what is it? What, is you, what are you about? And I said, we're about love, enjoy, play, and share. He says, well, Wow, that's intriguing. What does that mean? So, well, love God, learn to love God, enjoy people, play a part, uh, and, uh, and share the story. I mean, that's really what it all boils down to. That's who we are as people of God. And um, so we had that conversation, and it reminded me that's what we're going to stay on this next year. Uh, our four goals of discipleship, leadership, apprentice, um, what we call our calling a multi-space gathering, and... Uh, this idea that we want to have multiple locations where we worship, which could mean we change that up and not just simply have Sunday services, but we also may have some midweek services. People travel. People have things to do on the weekends. 
Culture is changing. Maybe we need to change with that culture. So we're looking at all three of those. By the way, discipleship is a big objective this coming year of laying out for us some clear ways that we can enter into into discipleship with one another. And one of the ways is through our life care ministry. They're called coaches. They're way beyond just acute care. They're, They're ready to help us be mentored in Christ, which is discipleship. And so a lot of exciting things happening there. Junior high, we're still looking and praying for uh, a replacement for our amazing junior high pastor, Tommy Olson, who we're still grieving the loss of, though he's still with us and present and involved in ministry on Tuesday with junior hires. And we've got some folks that a leadership team is they're vetting right now. And so be praying for that. I'm praying for someone to come that really wants to uh, take it on and not just simply um, carry it on and, 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 and handle what we have, but far exceed that and look out in the South Bay and realize we got a lot of junior hires out there. The potential is great. Maybe it's a full-time person, depending on whether we can afford that. Maybe we step up and we say we need someone full-time to go after junior hires in the South Bay through the River Church for the name of Christ. I mean, I think it's possible, don't you? I really do. I believe we can do that. And so that's a big focus. And then, of course, mission, mission mandate. And that ties me in to my message this morning, a two-part series. As, uh, as we talk about vision, I really want to talk about our mission mandate. And I believe this is something that I've been kind of thinking about, kind of noodling on, if that's the right word, uh, for quite a while. Something that I would say I've been fairly dissatisfied about in my own life and something that I really want to leave behind as I potentially transfer the leadership of this church to a new generation. It's no surprise that my generation is not the generation to continue on in carrying the vision and the mission of the church. It's the next generation. That's why Tuesday we're having a young generation meeting in Imagine 2020, and we've invited all the young people to come join us here, decide what it's going to look like for the river in the next 20, 50, 100 years. And so I'm hoping that place is filled up with young people, by the way. And, and as I transition, and as we transition and hand over leadership to another generation, I'm thinking about what is the message that I want to give to this generation, this next generation? And what message do I want to leave? It's a two-part series. It comes out at Romans chapter 8 this morning. The first 13 verses today, and then next week I want to come back and look at verse 15 all the way to verse 25. It's a two-part message. And this is what I believe God has been saying to me about our church. Be dissatisfied with something. Christianity is not a religion or a system or a duty, but a relationship with Jesus. It is not about me, entirely about me. It's about a bigger story that God is working out. And that's the big discovery that I've been focusing on. Is that we, what we've done, I think, is we've, we've kind of individualized faith. And, and, and we look at these passages in the New Testament, and we look, well, my, it's about my relationship with Christ. It's about me er, learning more about Christ in me. And we don't finish the sentence. You've got to finish the sentence. 
It's Christ in me doing a greater work in the world. And that's Romans 8. That's the whole story of Romans 8. Paul's grand conclusion to a phenomenal, phenomenal message in, in the epistle to the Romans, starting in chapter 1, moving all the way to chapter 8. What Paul is saying is that world has gone wrong. Something has entered into the world's sin and has deteriorated, decayed the value system, the morality, the focus, the worldview of this world. But something has happened. Christ has been fused into the redemptive plan, into the world by God's design in order to bring about a change. And the change happens in us. That's Romans. And that change happens so that we then can be who we were called to be from the very beginning, back to Genesis, as part of creation, those that are now continuing to participate in the ongoing creation of the world through culture. That's our job. That's what I'm learning. And you put those two together. What Christ does in you has the impact of turning you into somebody new that now has an impact in culture. And so it's no longer just about me and what I get, but how I'm impacted by it and how it changes that dimension. And so in Romans chapter 8, we learn this story that we are no longer in condemnation, Romans 8, 1 says. We're no longer under the guilt. We're no longer under the pressure, the downward pull of the world. The decay, the moral decay, the value system, the worldview, the way it sees life and its purpose. We're no longer under the condemnation that it brings in Christ. It says, for those that are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled who do not walk according to the flesh but now walk according to the spirit. We now live in a new life in relationship with Christ walking in a new power called the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to look at today. How do we live in the power of the Holy Spirit? How do you live out a faith that has been given to you, that has changed your worldview, changed your moral perspective, changed your value system, changed your purpose? How do we do that? It's in the power of the Spirit. And then notice where Paul takes us. It doesn't end there. It moves on, and the argument continues. And in verse 15, we learn that we are now adopted into God's family, and we cry out, Abba, Father, in this intimate relationship with God. And then he talks about the sufferings of this present time. Are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly, it says in verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. The world is waiting for us to be revealed. In other words, we play a part in releasing the world of its suffering. Does that make sense? I mean, are you getting this? 
I mean, this, this is our role in playing in the great story that's being worked out. The revealing of the sons and daughters of God. And, here, and we continue. I mean, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, there's a relationship between your freedom being set free and the world being set free. And one day in the future, it will be all set free. There will be a new creation, a new heaven, and the new earth. We know that God created, put us in the garden, gave us a mandate, now multiply, be fruitful, till the land, till the soil, make something of this. Sin enters in the world. It's all redeemed in Christ. And in the end, in Revelation chapter 21, at the very end of the Bible, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and God makes all things new. And in the middle of all that, we get to participate, though it's not all done yet, but it's happening because Jesus said, I bring the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Live now into the kingdom of God and into the future that you are now sons and daughters of God in the power of the Spirit that brings about change in the world today. That's the grand story of the Bible. And what I've been learning is that it's not just about me. In the, in the words of N.T. Wright, who I've been reading quite a bit this week uh, on, uh, he says that our faith has somehow been privatized, that it only belongs, it's a westernized view of Christianity, he says. My salvation, it's about me. And the great reformers have always pointed us back to the beginning that God was up to something bigger. We've been given a great gift not to hoard it, but to steward it. It changes our perspective on what we've been given. No longer something to hoard, but something to steward. Not just simply for us, but also for the benefit of others. Salvation, he says, is not simply a gift to his people. Salvation is a gift through his people. We are bringing salvation into the world through Christ. He says it another way. We are not saved from the world we are saved for the world of creation. You're not saved from it. You're not pulled out of it. You're actually put right back into it for the sake of making a difference. The best way to illustrate it is the movie that we watched this uh, last few days, uh, Harriet Tubman. I don't know whether you've seen it yet. And uh, yet it's a powerful film about this woman born in, 18, in slavery in 1822. She earned her own freedom by running from Maryland to Philadelphia. But what's interesting about the story of Harriet Tubman is what she did with her freedom. She was unsatisfied living as a free woman. She couldn't live comfortably free without focusing on the fact that her own family and her friends and fellow African-Americans in this country, were still enslaved. And she returned 13 times to save 70 other people from slavery. And there's one scene in the middle of it that we got to look at when we get to one of these passages about what the Holy Spirit does. But the point, I think, of her life illustrates so perfectly that what Harriet Tubman discovered was her freedom was not her own freedom. 
It was freedom for a greater purpose to help set other people free. And that's what I want to focus on for the next five years, for the next 10 years, however long God has. One of my goals and objectives that I wrote down, I wrote down several objectives for 2020. And one of them was, is uh, to uh, invite more in my friend group that are not churchgoers over to the home for meals. To join at our table the whole idea of the table, Matthew 9, Jesus with his disciples meeting Matthew and his friends, sinners and tax gatherers and other people and people from the community who didn't go to church, who didn't, don't know Jesus, and to, to join together at the table. Uh, that's, that's my vision. That's something I really want to live into. How does that happen? Two things, today and next week. Today, you got to understand the power and the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. You really do. See, because we're no longer under a condemnation. We've been set free by the Spirit of God. And three things happen. An eradication, an enablement, and an empowerment. That's what the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit is God himself. We already know that. We know from the very beginning of the Scripture in Genesis that that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface. We know that the Holy Spirit was involved when there was nothing and then all of a sudden creation happened. It it was created through God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in conjunction, working together. They created and then the plan of redemption was hatched and then the life of Christ and the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit comes down and fills believers. We see the Holy Spirit all throughout the Bible. The Holy Spirit is God just as much as the Father is God, as just as much as Jesus is God. But our problem is, is that we often see the Holy Spirit as some kind of powerful source, force out there, some mystical thing, some concept, some thing that we need to grab onto and, and that would give us this power, this gas in our engines, so to speak, to keep us going. And yet what we learn is the Holy Spirit's a, a person, uh, Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John that I send you a what? I send you a power. I send you a mystical figure. I send you a system of beliefs. I send you a person, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who will come alongside you, the one who will dwell within you. It's a person. The Holy Spirit Spirit is a person. Do you see that? And so What does this person of the Holy Spirit do? Well, three things. Eradicates, enables, and empowers. And here we are. The first thing the Holy Spirit does right there is in the verse 1 and 2. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus anymore. No longer condemned. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, there's a law of sin and death that exists in the world today. Ever try to change a habit? You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, habits are, uh, we have old habits and we try to, typically what we try to do is replace them with uh, new habits without changing the old habits. And what we know based on our research and most will tell us is there's no way to change your life until you, first of all, have to die to something you're doing right now. And that's the point. The Holy Spirit enables or or eradicates, I should say, use the right word here, eradicates the tyrannical, powerful force of sin that lives and exists in the world today. 
It eradicates it. I mean, this is Paul's big argument from Romans 6 to Romans 8, that what's happened is that some big exchange has happened. That, that we had prior to our relationship with Christ an old nature that had a proclivity, had a predisposition of moving in the wrong direction. And we know that. I mean, it's, it's really hard to change habits. We all know that, right? I mean, my first thought of when I thought of this was Miracle on 34th Street. Remember uh, Mr. Sawyer, the, uh, the supposed psychologist of Macy's? Remember him? Granville Sawyer is his name. And, and remember Santa or, uh, or Chris Kringle has to go see him and be evaluated. And what is he? He's just kind of got this nervous twitch and he's always working on his eyebrows, isn't he? And he's just, and he's got a bigger problem than Chris Kringle does thinking he's Santa Claus. I mean, he's the great antagonist in the whole movie and he's got the biggest problem. And, and Chris Kringle points it out and he just kind of goes berserk. It's something in him that can't change. He can't change it. And yet what we discover in this passage is that the Holy Spirit has done that. See, we got to go back in the argument to Romans chapter 6, verse 6, where Paul says, knowing that our old self was crucified. See, your nature has changed. This is fundamental to your faith. Titus 3, 5, and 6, we've been washed We've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you come into faith with Christ, your nature changes. The old nature, the old self is done. It's gone. So that, Paul says in Romans 6, the body of sin, that continued proclivity, that predisposition to down, the downward uh, lifestyle of sin can be done away with. Rendered inoperative. It's rendered inoperative the moment you come into a relationship with Christ. The old self is gone, dead. So now what happens is that body of sin that lives within you, that's part of an old system, is eradicated in power and in influence and authority in your life. It's not something you have to pray for. It's something you already get. Does it mean that we stop sinning? No, absolutely not. Because it continues to sway us. You know this. You're heading in a good direction. You're living in the power of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, what happens? A thought comes in, temptation, the old way of life. See, those things haven't changed. And all of a sudden, it pulls you back. It pulls you back. But you recognize the fact, wait a minute, it doesn't have the authority anymore. It doesn't have the power. I don't have to obey it. One of the big discoveries in the Christian life is the fact that you don't have to obey that. You don't have to respond the way you think you're about ready to respond. You don't have to think on the thought that comes into your mind that you know is going to take you down the wrong road. See, that's what the power of the Spirit has done. It's eradicated the tyrannical demands of our fleshly nature because you've been given a totally new one. Do you see that? Does that make sense? Um, the problem is, is that we don't see it that way. I, I, I've been reading um, Gladwell's uh, Talking with Strangers. Have you seen that? And Talking to Strangers, his whole point is that when we misread people, we think we know people, but we really don't. 
You may think you know the person sitting next to you, but you really don't. I mean, that's Gladwell's big point, is that, that, that a computer has a better chance of reading uh, people than people do in person, which is, which is really, really strange. We give people the benefit of the doubt. That's what we do. We assume people are good-natured, and yet he gives countless stories of, like, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of England, meeting with Adolf Hitler prior to World War II, who Hitler says and promises, I will not invade Czechoslovakia, and yet what does he do? He does the exact opposite. I mean, he goes through example of example of Bernie Madoff and Sandusky or Cortez and Montezuma and and their relationship, and Cortez, the Spanish, um, begin to colonize Mexico, and, and he meets Montezuma, Montezuma assumes him as a god and is, wants to, uh, uh, you know, uh, honor him. And, and Cortez murders Montezuma rather than building a relationship with him. How did that go wrong? He gives the illustration of 2015 when this one woman, Sandra Bland, remember that name? Sandra Bland failed to signal when she turned, was pulled over by a police officer, and three days later in a jail she hung herself. How'd that happen? What went wrong in that encounter? Who misread who? What took place in that situation? And so he goes on. And the point is, is that we think we know. We think we know better. We, th- we assume the best. And what Paul is saying is that has to die. And in the spirit of God, it's dead. And for some of us here this morning, you just need to make a new start. A fresh start to understand that that relationship has been broken. The power and the influence is no longer on you. You have to believe that. But we got to move forward. There's something now that the Spirit enables you to do. And if you keep reading, you notice in the text that it says not only frees you from the law of the sin and death, but for what the law, capital L, the moral law of God, he's now turning to another kind of law. Not the law of sin and death, but the law that comes from us through the Old Testament, through the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And all that is described about how God wants his people to live. Notice what it says about this. It could not fulfill its demands, weak as it was through the flesh. So God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but now walk according to the Spirit. So the law of God has a moral demand. The problem with it is that moral demand cannot be met perfectly. We're going to fail. We are going to fail. But does that eliminate the law altogether? The answer to the question is no. The law is good. But yet what Paul is saying, in the Spirit, through Christ, the demands of the law have been met in Christ. See, the the idea that there's no condemnation on you means literally that Jesus went to the courtroom on your behalf. You, you, You did something wrong. You were found guilty. You were given a sentence. You now had to pay a debt. And what's happening in this situation is that Jesus, in his death, goes into the courtroom and he lays his life down and in his death the debt is paid. And what do you do? You walk out free. No longer held by the demands of the law. 
The law can never condemn you ever again. Ever again. The law can't do it because it doesn't have that ability. It can't justify you. It can't condemn you. Christ has paid that, so you walk out free. How do you walk out? Well, you're almost like the same person as you walked in, but what's different? Your relationship to it. You've been acquitted. It's over. Done. And now what happens within you is that you now have a new motivation and power to live out the true intention of the law that first condemned you. You now desire. And what, what, what happens in this exchange with the Spirit, what James says in James chapter 1, is that this Word of God becomes the law of liberty. It's a freeing law. The Spirit of God replaces the law itself, retaining the value of the morality of the law so that you now have the ability to fulfill what God wants for you from the beginning. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 that uh, we've been transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. See, there's a will of God. There's a moral will of God for your life. But you can't live it on your own. You need the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God acquits you through Christ of the guilt and now empowers you to live out the true law itself, which is now a law of liberty. I mean, it's called in other places, literally it's replaced with uh, the law of love. Um, So where do we go from here? We're now enabled... Something's been eradicated. And the final point, which is so important, is it empowers us to win daily battles. See, the rest of this section is about the contrast between living in the flesh and living in the spirit. You walk in the spirit, you have life. You walk in the flesh, you have death. And it's back and forth. And then he changes and he says, now, the mindset on the spirit is life. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. But you're, you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit, Paul says in verse 9. Then he moves on. Yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through Christ who dwells in you. So we're not under obligation to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We're now living according to the spirit. By putting to death the deeds of the body. Do you see that? That's the daily battle that we face. The Holy Spirit eliminates the authority of it, but not its influence. It's still a voice in your head. But by putting your mind on the Spirit, guess what happens? You now are enlightened to a new reality in the Spirit that mortifies, the word is to mortify or to put to death those deeds that you think you need to fulfill. The words that you hear, the thoughts that you think. So how does that happen? Paul says it's all based on the the mind. Bill talked about the mind, the importance of renewing the mind last week out of Ephesians 4. This is a different use of that word mind. Phroneo means here, not the mind itself, but a mindset. The mindset or the will of the person. And what he's talking about here is uh, this, this 
internal desire that's developed based upon a perspective that comes from a new mindset. I mean, it's a worldview. You think of people with a worldview. People have worldviews out there. And I'm telling you, you can't change their worldview. It's the way they see life. See, their mind is occupied by a worldview often, uh, often developed through relationships. And you've, you've seen movies where uh, there's a great revolutionary and he gathers people around, mentors and disciples, these revolutionaries, and they become, through relationship, indoctrinated into the revolution. And then they want to participate in the revolution. And that focuses their attention on it. And it changes their world. And they see things differently. And so they fight to the death for it. That's what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. Changing your worldview. Enlightening you to a new truth. And what's happening is it's changing your perspective through the relationship that you now have in the Holy Spirit. That's how We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The change of the mind happens in the context of the relationship that is developed. Let me give you an illustration. Chariots of Fire. Remember remember the story of Eric Liddell? And uh, he was a runner, Olympian. And so was Harold Abrams. And these two lives are contrasted in the film. One ran for the glory of God, The other ran to prove his his own existence. Later in uh, uh, life, after after Eric Liddell had uh, died in a prison camp in um, um, China, his sister was interviewed about the film and said there was one scene in the film that really portrays what was going on behind the scenes for Eric Liddell. And it's the scene where he's running and his head is up and his mouth is open. Do you remember the scene? Do you have that picture in mind? He's running. You're looking at him. That's an odd way to run. And yet what Eric Liddell's sister said is that Eric was worshiping God. See, he had a totally different mindset. And he was captivated by the glory of God as he ran with his head up and his mouth open. And, and, and that's why he would say later, when challenged that he lives for God, he worships God. It's about worshiping God, but God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Harold Abrams on the other side was interviewed and was asked about why he ran, and he said, I have 10 seconds in which to prove my existence. Totally different perspective. Living with a totally world, different worldview, mindset on something totally. The objective of the Christian life Living in the power of the Spirit is to have our mindsets changed through the impact of the Holy Spirit that you are now in relationship with through the Word of God. He's opened up the Word of God. He's enlightened you to the Word. And now we should be, as one writer says, smitten by God, smitten by the beauty of Christ and the glory that we see. John Don writes, Take me to you. Imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, shall never be free nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. 
Have you been ravished by your relationship with the Holy Spirit that lives within you? Ravished by the discoveries that he's bringing through the word of God. Opportunities throughout the week to open up your eyes and to see a totally different perspective. The power lies in the enlightenment through the closeness of the relationship. That's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, I always thought it would just like suddenly happen. And there was. And it, it changes me. I've now become more and more aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit wants to guide me. And in the guiding, change a perspective, aligning me to the truth and empowering me to live a different life. So my challenge this morning is to talk to him. Enter into conversation. Worship him. Get to know him. The closer I become to the Holy Spirit, the more power I experience to live into his freedom from the flesh. I'm learning this. Today, what are you going to do? Here we are as we close uh, this morning, and the worship team's welcome to come on up, and we're gonna, this is going to lead into a time of communion. The great exchange happens when we go to communion, and we lay something down, and we pick something up. And maybe you're going to lay down a proclivity, a predisposition, a, a, an old habit, something you're hanging on to that you really desire. It's time. Holy Spirit, you've, you've, you've cut off this relationship. I'm going to lay it down. It's time. And maybe you're going to pick something up, a new relationship with the Holy Spirit who wants to lead and guide you. Jesus says, really, Paul says it in 8 chapter 3, 8 verse 3, it all happens as a sin offering. It's Christ being offered for us. You're not doing it. It's the offering. And we go to the offering table, and it's the offering of Christ so that all of this can happen. Look to that. You look to that, what happens is you're filled up with wonder. You're filled up with glory. You're filled up with the truth about what's really happened that begins to change your life. Let's pray. So, Father, I recognize the fact that there are many people here, Lord, that are learning something maybe very new to their faith, maybe still in the battle, uh, maybe uh, small battles rage, but, but they still are raging. And today's a big day for us. And so we pray you'd be gracious to us with your amazing love through the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, it's, it's been forgiven. And now it's a matter of us holding on to that truth this morning. I want to hold on to that. I really do. I want to hold on to that. And I want to lean into a new relationship. Holy Spirit, you're here. Holy Spirit, come. Reveal yourself to us through your word, your presence, even during worship. So we stand ready in Jesus' name. Amen.